Live. 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 Live from... This is the Just End the Suffering Podcast. For the win. Got it! Oh! He broke his ankle! Follow me! Follow me to freedom! Here's your host, Mike Phillips. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the latest episode of the Just End the Suffering Podcast, featuring New York Sports Talk and Long Suffering Fan. Your host, Mike Phillips. A very Mets-themed episode for you this week. We are talking New York Mets baseball. I'm going to be joined by the editor of the Mesodamus site that I write on, John Coppinger. We're going to talk about the Mets, the, the end of the 2021 team, because basically this season's over. It's been over. We're going to sort of do the funeral for that. Plus, we're going to talk about the 30 for 30 that came out about the 86 Mets last week. Uh, once upon a time in Queens, watched all four parts, a lot of fun, broke it all down with John. That's all coming up in just a bit. We also do our week three NFL picks. I'm going to be joined by Nick Frietta, big time Giant fan. And boy, Giants had a rough week in Washington. That was brutal loss in week two. We break that down, do our week three picks as well. Make sure you're locked in the end of the show for this week's two minute drill. And we got a surprise on that Thursday night football halftime show. We learned about an in-season edition of Hard Knocks. I'm going to break down what I think that might look like at the end of the show, but we're going to start with our opening tip with my thoughts on the 2021 New York Mets right after this. Three, two, one. Y'all ready for this? The opening tip. And here we go. All right, opening tip time, talking some Mets, and it feels incredible to think about this. The New York Mets, who on day of recording on Friday, September 17th, are 72-75. and 75. They're Five and a half games out of the National League East. They are five games out of the wild card. They have a 2% chance to hit the playoffs. They spent 90 days in first place this summer. Gotten first back in May. Stayed there until they got swept in Philadelphia. The season since then has completely spiraled out of control. This team has had issues for a while. A lot of them. The close wins they were getting when the bench mob was there in May really masked some of those deficiencies. This team, you look back on it, they had so many opportunities to bury the division. Nobody that stretch. Remember late June when we had the 16 games in a row against the Nationals, the, the Braves, and the Phillies? They basically split those games. You had a chance to put separation here. They did not. They had another shot again in late July. The Braves come in for a five-game set. They lost three. Atlanta said, you know what? We're in this. We're going to buy. And they went out and they got pieces. And they made a push. The idea that the Mets were going to keep playing this mediocre brand of ball and survive the East, it was slim. Because you knew somebody's getting hot. Where's the Braves? Where's the Phillies? It turned out it was the Braves. Somebody was going to get hot. Their season really ended in that 2-11 stretch against the Giants and the Dodgers when they lost all those one-run games. But mathematically, they're still alive because the race in the East, the race that second wild card, they've been dealt incredible hands because the teams in that race, the Padres falling apart with all the injuries, the Braves haven't done a ton when they face good teams, the Phillies are the Phillies, the Reds got hot and they can't get out of their own way against bad teams. The Cardinals have been playing mostly bad, mediocre ball until the last couple of weeks and they got hot. 
They've kept them in this. This is sort of what happened at the end of last season, the end of 2020. We had the expanded playoff field, 18s per league. And we're sitting there at the last day of the season saying, boy, if the Mets just win four games and all these other things happen, they can get in the eight seed and never know what happens. With Jacob DeGrom pitching well and all that. Everything went right for the Mets that, day, that year. They got all the help they could possibly want and more. But they missed the playoffs because they could not win their own games. It's become clear down the stretch to me. Somebody watches this team day in and day out. There has to be a massive overhaul of this team. Start off here, clean out that front office. Sandy Olsen, I don't think he should be in the organization at this point. I think he's part of the problem. Because that toxic culture, a lot of the hires that Sandy has made have contributed to it. Whether it was Jared Porter, who gets hired last two months before the athletic article reveals that he's basically a sexual predator in terms of harassing a woman over text for years. Zach Scott, who's getting DWIs after getting too drunk at the owner's charity function. Or it's Mickey Calloway, who whose sexual harassment was the worst kept secret in baseball. Sandy hired all three of those guys. And I guess he's not a lot for the franchise. He built the 2015 team. At some point, I think, on the business side, I don't think it's good enough. I think you have to say, you know what? I appreciate all you've done. You helped me get the team, if I'm Steve Cohen, and say, look, we'll put you in the Met Hall of Fame. Lifetime pass the stadium whenever you want. I think for our best interest and for your legacy, you should move on. The manager, he infuriates me. I am so over Louis Rojas because he consistently makes these boneheaded mistakes because he follows the script he's given from the front office to a letter, to the T, and does not improvise when opportunities present themselves. Let me give you a few examples. That platoon advantage that he loves even putting guys up who are inferior players to the other Aussie because they have the platoon advantage. Remember Patrick Rizika in Miami getting the pinch hitting appearance over a guy like J.D. Davis because he was left-handed and Anthony Bender had a ridiculous slider. He grounded three feet in front of the mound got, and the Mets blew a chance to get the lead in. About two nights ago, Albert Almora in the 11th inning, pinch hitting, He's hitting a buck 18 on the year with the tying run at second base. It predictably gets out. When Luis Guillorme is on the bench, he has a much better batting average. He's hitting 276. He's hitting well against lefties, but he's a lefty facing a lefty. We can't let that happen. Now Ron Moore gets demoted the very next day, so that tells you all you need to know about that situation. On the other hand, his ridiculously ending amount of faith in Edwin, Di- Edwin Diaz. Go back to that Marlin game, the one where Patrick Rizika pinch hit for James McCann and end up grounding out. The Marlins have the run around third base. They have two outs. Tie game. De La Cruz is up for the Marlins. He's the only guy on that team worth anything hitting. He's hitting 340. The math says, walk him. You have two free bases. His run means nothing. Put him on there. Beyond that patter, Lewin Diaz hitting a buckle at a 105. Take the easy out. Luis says, no, I'll pitch to De La Cruz. Hits a bomb to center field. Run comes in, game over. That stuff infuriates me. And then we have the brilliance from this week where he's prioritizing arm care and scheduled off days over trying to win the division or get in the playoffs. They are putting guys in inferior situations because we are protecting the arms and we are managing every game as if it is April 15th, which he basically told WFAN, Craig Carton, and Robert said, 
I don't manage games in September differently than I manage them in April or May. That's a problem. That tells me you don't know the moment here. You can't manage this team. You got to go. Then there's the roster. This group has been underwhelming for three years outside of a six-week run in 2019. You shouldn't be married to them. This core has not done more than 86 wins in a season. You have a few keepers, though. Pete Alonso is a keeper. Francisco Lindor is going to be here. He's hitting well down the stretch. I'm fine with that. Brandon Nimmo is useful. I think he should stay. Michael Conforto is tricky. My personal opinion, I offer the qualifying offer. If he doesn't take it, see ya. I'll look to upgrade. Javi Baez is an interesting discussion. Because remember two weeks ago with the thumbs down gate, I was really out. Now for me, after watching him play more and seeing the things he can do, there's a lot of your assessments in his game. Whereas he will do things where you're sitting there going, Javi, what the hell are you doing? Why are you swinging at balls that are bouncing 15 feet from the plate? And then you'll see him do these El Mago slides and make these ridiculous heads up plays, hit clutch on, and you're like, wow, we need Javi Baez here. It depends on the price tag with him because his skill set is one I don't know how it ages because he's a very speed-based player. If that speed goes, is he as valuable? That's a good question. But he does a lot of things his team doesn't have. And that's something that could be very useful. I think the Mets have to move on from both J.D. Davis and Dom Smith. Dom has done his best. I feel bad for him because he's trying with what they asked him to, but he's not a left fielder. He's first baseman, and the Mets have one in Pete Alonso. I think it's best for Dom and them to send him somewhere where he can play first base every day and really get out of his career. The fascination with J.D. Davis from the Mets fans. I just don't understand this. I saw on Twitter the other day, Mets fan suggested... We have to re-sign Javi Baez. Like, okay, I can see the argument. We have to save money. We're looking forward to go. I'm like, okay, I understand that. We'll give J.D. Davis right field. He has a cannon arm. He can make it work out there. I read that. I'm sitting there. I'm just looking at this ridiculous tweet just going. What the hell's going on out here? And we heard this the deadline, too, when Met fans like, we don't need Chris Bryant. We have J.D. Davis. Have you watched the man play? He has one tool. It's a hit tool. It's a good hit tool, not a great hit tool. He cannot play defensively anywhere. He's bad at third. He was bad in left field in 2019. They tried him there. Now you're putting him in right field because he's strong arm? Really? Come on. It's driving me insane with J.D. Davis. He's a guy who should be a DH for a bad American League team. I think that's probably where he's going to end up because if you are want to become the East Coast Dodgers, like Steve Cohen has said he wants to. To the Los Angeles Dodgers, look at J.D. Davis and say, you know what? You play right field without any challenge. They do not do that. They look at J.D. Davis and say, you are a platoon player. We will find spots to get you in the game where you can impact it. Not your hand in unquestioned starting job. You need to stop settling for average players or mediocre players and strive for better players. If I'm building this team, I am looking at several big bats and complimentary pieces to shake up this group. I think Baez is definitely a factor to be brought back. I consider Chris Bryant. I know the Giants are making a run at him, but you can offer more money if you want. Nick Castellanos probably got opt out from the Reds. He gives you instant offense. Marcus Semien, I know you're talking about potentially second, third base option. He could be one if you choose to move on from Baez and bring in Bryant instead. Those are possibilities. Look at some trades. Use Dom, JD, try and get other pieces. Byron Buxton from the Twins is a guy I'm fascinated by. I think if you're going the Javi Baez route 
and you want to give him the big money. Trade for Byron Buxton, putting him in center field, moving Nimmo out to either left or right, depending on which direction you feel about the outfield here. I think it's an interesting choice. I think it could be very interesting. I know they both have injury issues, but Buxton in center field is dynamic defensively. He's a right-handed hitter who can make a lot of things happen. I think it's a gambling take. Pitching-wise, number one prior on this team has to be Marcus Stroman. You have to bring him back. Considering the injury issues Jacob DeGrom has dealt with, Noah Syndergaard hasn't pitched in two years, Carlos Carrasco has an injury-shortened year, Tylen Walker hit the wall. You don't have a lot of top pitching prospects in the pipeline. Tyrell McGill is here already. David Peterson was here, and he got hurt after having a rough start to 2021. And if you let Stroman go, I don't know where you find a replacement for him without having trade big pieces to go get it. I think he has to be the priority for them. Because you need that dependability rotation when you don't know for sure what you're getting out of Jake. You don't know what you're getting out of Noah. You hope you get more out of Carrasco because the hamstring thing is more of a fluke, but we'll see. You need the pitching. And Aaron Loop needs to be here in the bullpen. I think let Familia go. Keep Aaron Loop. Get some other options of the bullpen as well. But there's a lot of work to be done here. I think this roster needs significant turnover. I think they have a lot of pieces here, which is good. They have potentially three superstars already if they're healthy in DeGrom, Alonzo, and Lindor. Add a couple more big stars. Add some complimentary pieces. I think you have a chance to turn this very quickly, especially with the owner who can spend as much cash he wants to get whoever he wants in here. It all starts with that front office. Nail that. Let them build this roster. You can win very quickly. We'll see how this unfolds. It'll be interesting. We'll do more on the Mets in the offseason down the road, but we're going to talk about the Mets with that 86 documentary with John Covinger right after the trailer for it, courtesy of ESPN. In the 70s, being a Mets fan was not the happiest of times. It was kind of like, who are the Mets? Managers came and went, players came and went, but a core was being built. People talk about 86, but it was like a trilogy, man. 84, 85, and 86. We're better. Now we're going to dominate. The fan base and the city had been whipped up into a frenzy. You didn't know all this weird stuff was bubbling underneath. Mets developed a bullying, attention-grabbing reputation. The alcohol was flowing. Let's put it this way. We put the S in speed. Why should I worry about it? These guys are partying and they're winning also. That seemed like the win-win to me. If you were from Queens, you were on top of the world. Their behavior was disgusting, but winning cures a lot of sins. They'd won 108 games. What can go wrong? Once Upon a Time in Queens, September 14th and 15th at 8 p.m. Eastern on ESPN. All right, we are back here talking New York Mets baseball this week on the podcast. Joining today... The guy who runs the Metsradamus blog, one of my longtime co-workers here, and the guy best known on Twitter as Metsradamus, John Coppins is here. John, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you? Pretty good. I mean, the last time you were on the podcast, you were talking about sending Todd Frazier out in the ocean. I feel like not much has changed since then. Yeah, except he's not really in the ocean, but uh, he's far enough away, so we'll take it. Yeah, we'll take it. And I have to <laughs> say, this year has been a roller coaster. You know as well as I do. You had the 90 days in first place. You're like, okay, great. This could be a fun year. And then it all just goes right down the toilet here. So like, where do you think went wrong here? Where was the disconnect that this saw just fall off the cliff? Well, I think when you're talking about the Mets of 2021, I think we were all kind of a little bit fooled by, uh, by where they were and how good they were. When you think, when you think about it, they were about seven games over 500 for a lot of the first half of the season. And those seven games you could point to, there was a week where they swept 
the uh, Colorado Rockies and the Baltimore Orioles. And other than that, they were a 500 team. And then the rough part of the schedule came. Then it, it all seemed to fall apart. But the, the disappointing part of it was that when the rough part of the schedule came, most of the offense was healthy. We didn't have DeGrom, but the Mets also, the Mets had Conforto back. They had Nimmo back. They had McNeil back. And it was guys like that that didn't get the job done. And they are all having rough, rough seasons. And, uh, you know, I, I don't think you could really say anything about the pitching staff, uh, even the relievers. I think uh, everybody has kind of been on point with where they were supposed to be and even exceeded it. But the offense, outside of Alonzo and Brandon Nimmo, you know, everybody – uh, a lot of them had very disappointing seasons, and uh, these are the players that uh, we're going to – there are going to be some hard conversations about in the Mets front office about whether they're going to come back or whether they're going to uh, uh, be sent elsewhere or left, let to go in uh, free agency. Yeah, for sure. I think, obviously, for me, the big thing that bothers me, and I've talked to you about this on like on Twitter about this all the time, is the manager is really raising up my list of like the problems of this organization here because – Earlier this year, I said, okay, you know what? He's a good guy. He's at the clubhouse in order. Everything's going well, but maybe he's having no pulse in the clubhouse. He makes strange moves. He's going on WFAN saying, I managed games in September, same as in April. It makes no sense to me. I'm like, what? Like, I don't know what happened to this guy. Because all of a sudden, like, he's become, like, basically, it makes him long for the days of Mickey Calloway. It's, yeah, and it's funny because Mickey Calloway was very rarely in a position where his bad moves could have really torpedoed the season. You know, maybe I, I don't really remember, or maybe I've tried to block out the end of 2019. So I don't remember the uh, Calloway moves that uh, that sunk the season, if there were any. But uh, Rojas's moves have been head scratchers, like serious head scratchers. And you wonder. I wonder if there's going to be a new hierarchy above Rojas. Does he really have a chance to say, you know, there's been some backlash uh, from some media members. uh, I won't mention who, but uh, one in particular saying, Hey, both the Mets and the Yankees need to re-sign their managers. And I think that's just that reporter being contrarian because uh, everybody said that Luis Rojas's strength was, the handle that he had on the clubhouse yet when there were a lot of things that came up in the clubhouse his answer always seemed to be oh i didn't know about that well how do you not know about that if you're the guy that is supposedly so good at handling the clubhouse that's why i kind of wonder what really the the manager's role has evolved in and if we're we're ever going to have a good manager again and not not to say that won't be good managers but there's there seems to be a growing disconnect between a lot of managers and front office people where the front office people are kind of giving the managers the blueprint. And I think what we all uh, see with Rojas is that he sticks to the blueprint a lot. He sticks to the righty lefty matchups, bringing in Albert Almora hitting 118 as the last at last gasp of the game, instead of Luis Guillorme, who's a much better hitter overall and against left-handers uh, bringing in Jake Reed in the 11th inning. Cause that's because, because it's all what the script says and managers, a thread with the last couple of managers also has been their lack of being able to explain why he made these moves. And it tells me that these managers are trying to cover up for the front office and they're taking the bullets for the front office. Now, now is that fair? I don't know. But it, it, it seems to me that uh, a manager, the role of a manager means that they're never going to, and not just the Mets, any team. Oh, the role of the manager is just so different now. They're going to take the heat, but for for somebody else's decisions, and that and that I think is going to be a growing disconnect. And I think it, I think it's just going to last no matter who the Mets decide to hire, unless they hire somebody with just 
uh, scads of experience like a Buck Showalter where you say, okay, we're going to give you a little freedom to get to know the roster and do what you do. And that's, that's the way it always had been. And I think that, I think we need to get back to that a little bit uh, as, as to clearly define the roles in the front office and in the manager's office. Even so, I mean, he's not a good manager. We've, we've learned this pretty clearly. I mean, you, you said to me off, off the air here, you said that if Louis is managing 86 mess, this team would have lost to Houston in five games. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I, I, and I definitely agree with that. I mean, again, there are moves, like I said, there are moves that uh, he's following the script of the front office, but there are moves that he, that only he can make because he is in the throes of a game and he has to make decisions. And the decisions that he has made have been really, really bad. And, and, and uh, like not, not walking Brian De La Cruz in favor of uh, in favor of facing a 105 hitter, Luan Diaz. Uh, that, that didn't work. There's so many of them that I don't think you can get not, I don't think you could explain it away with a front office disconnect. I think Lewis has shown that he's not ready, that he, at least that he hasn't done this well. And the, 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 if the argument is, well, you don't want to let him go because he could be successful somewhere else. Now that doesn't really hold water for me because you're judged on what you are at that moment. And if you never become that person, then then a team has just wasted 10 years on you. And I don't think the Mets want that to happen. I think they want somebody who can understand the basic tenets of managing, which is, you know, pitch to the for the to the guy hitting 100 and not to the guy hitting 300, you know, yeah, things yeah. like that. So, yeah. And I, I also think with a new hierarchy coming in, yeah, I, I think even if even if Luis Rojas does make a case to stay, I don't think it's going to matter. I think a new hierarchy is going to probably want to bring in their own people. So I think, I think Rojas is doomed either any way you slice. Yeah. Cause not even like you're saying, not even like these complicated moves, like, Oh, should I pitch to him here? It's like stuff that you and I on the couch can say, Oh, that's the wrong move. And then it ends up backfiring and then the explanation comes out. It makes no sense. Yeah. And, that, and that's the thing. And that's what I always say. I'm not that smart. I'm not a guy that that's going to go on Twitter constantly and second guess the manager. I'm not that guy. There are a lot of people that do that. I don't do that. But if I outmanage you on Twitter, then you shouldn't be managing the Mets. That's the, you know, I, I'm the very low baseline. Yes. If, if I'm, if I'm coming up with moves before you screw them up, you shouldn't be the manager. Yeah. I remember that Miami game, you you tweeted out walk day La Cruz now, and then they didn't do it. And then they lost the game. And I remember the yeah. explanation next day was, I had faith in Edwin Diaz to get the out. And I remember Evan Rogers off and asked why and he didn't really have a good answer for it. Well, and, and that's, and that's the thing, you know, you, you're managing 25 guys in that clubhouse, 26 yeah. guys. Yeah. And what he basically did was put the feelings of one player above the goals of the 26 players and I, and or of the other 25 players. I don't think you can do that. I, I, you think you have to make every move, with winning in mind and with the entire team in mind, not just the feelings of one player. And it also, and look, it, when you explain it like that, that I had tr- faith in Edwin Diaz, it almost makes it seem like Diaz, like, like you have to placate Diaz, like he's like, he's fragile or something. And that's not fair to Edwin Diaz either, no. you know? So I, uh, I just, yeah, I didn't like that explanation. I think if you put one guy above the other 25, I, I think that dooms you. Yeah, let's do a little, since we're basically having the funeral of the 2021 Mets right now, I know they're still playing as a recording. They're playing the Phillies this weekend. They have a 2% chance to make the playoffs. They're not, they're not getting there. No, they're, they're not getting there. Uh, they haven't shown that they can beat teams that they should beat, and they haven't shown that they can beat teams that are on their level. I mean, the, the Cardinals 
were basically on the Mets level, maybe a little above them, but it wasn't like the Dodgers and Giants who were, we knew the Dodgers and Giants were the class of the National League and the Mets didn't fare well against them. But you thought they would have a chance to beat a team like St. Louis two out of three at home and they got swept and they got crushed in one of the games. So, so if you, if you can't beat teams like that and you can't te- beat teams below you like the Miami Marlins, then you haven't done anything to, to convince people that you've got a run left in you. And I'm sorry, the Mets don't have a run left in you. Yeah, they don't. Let's let's do a little stay or go here quickly around. The, they have a lot of key pieces there kind of come off the board in the offseason, where they stay, where they go. So I'll throw one out. You start here that's not on the list, but one that I think you should have an easy opinion on here. Should Sandy Alderson stay or go? I think he should go. Uh, listen, Sandy did a great job building the team in 2015. He did get a little lucky with Cespedes because the Gomez trade didn't work out. But there were things that he did that were positive. But in this iteration of the Mets and and with the things swirling that are swirling around the hires that he made, Jared Porter, Zach Scott, Alderson becomes a little problematic. And I think that if you're going to go in a direction where you're bringing in fresh blood anyway, like a new a new president of baseball ops, a new general manager, uh, then I think Sandy. I think the right thing for Sandy to do is to step 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 aside now. Apparently he's going to be more on the business side anyway. And if you're bringing in baseball people to do, to run the baseball operations and Sandy stays on the business side, I suppose that's acceptable. But if, if Sandy is doing anything with the baseball ops, if, if, if something goes wrong with the hires next year and Sandy has to go back to the baseball ops, then there's a problem. Yeah. I think I'm personally of the opinion Sandy should go out entirely just because you're trying to change the culture. I know that Cohen's a good relationship with him and basically the ticket that got the owners to approve him. But at the same time, you're looking at it, it's like a lot of the bad culture that they're trying to get rid of. A lot of the higher Sandy Mitt, you mentioned those two, plus Mickey Callaway, who he stuck his neck out for. And then that one blew up in their faces too. It's like, if this kind of kind of a spot where you're Steve Cohen, you're thinking, you know what, like, go talk to Sandy and say, hey, you know, did a good job. Thanks for your time. We'll put you in the Met Hall of Fame. You can hang out here whenever you want. But like, let's get you a graceful retirement here so you don't have like this black cloud just keep forming over you. And, and you hope that Sandy doesn't become the Glenn Sather of the Mets, where yeah. Jim Dolan uh, just gave Glenn Sather the golden ticket. Like, he never left. There was never anything Sather could do to get fired. You hope that that's not the situation here. And I don't think, I don't think he would want to embarrass Sandy, but I do think that, that Sandy should at some point say, okay, listen, I've helped you out. I'll, I'll, I've given you the, uh, the new – the new regime here. I'll help you bring in the new regime, which again could still be very problematic considering the past hires. But yeah, I think at some at some point, Sandy, if if he doesn't step down entirely, at least stay clear away from the baseball operations. All right, let's go player. I think you and I both agreed Rojas should go. So I don't think we're gonna waste our time with that one. Yes. Okay. Agreed. Uh, Marcus Stroman, stay or go? I think the Mets should do everything in their power to bring him back. I'm not sure he comes back. You know, the thing we have to realize is that these players only get a shot at, at the big free agent payday once in their lives if they're lucky. This is Stroman's chance, and in, in also this is Javi Baez's chance. So if somebody blows away Marcus Stroman with an offer to be their ace, whereas here in the best-case scenario, he's the number two starter, if he, if he gets a bunch of money to be the ace somewhere and to also get away from the New York media – which he's been at war with, he might take it, but that's, uh, that's up to him. I, I think the Mets should do whatever they can. He had, he's had the best season of his career. He saved them 
when uh, they've needed saving. And I think, I think it's going to be from here on out, Strowman's going to pitch like an ace somewhere. I hope that it's here because again, you can't have too much pitch, pitching and the Mets certainly don't have that much pitching that they can afford to let a Marcus Stroman go. So I would bring him back. I'm not sure he decides to come back. I think he's got to be priority number one for them this offseason. I think just because there are alternatives in the market for bats for them, but like if you let Marcus Stroman leave, you are basically hoping Noah Syndergaard is healthy and ready to go for you. And you can't guarantee that. And Jacob DeGrom's injury is a problem. And you have Tylon Walker hit the wall and you have a couple of kids who have innings issues. Like, they don't, I don't know where this pitching is coming from if Stroman leaves. So I think he's got to be the number one priority for them. Absolutely agreed on all counts. All right. The Javier Baez situation, which I know two weeks ago I was completely out on him after the thumbs down gate and the way he's played. Yes, he does stupid things from time to time that drive you crazy. But I think it's a bit of suspicious in him where he, you know, does these things that you sit there going, what are you doing? Then he has these plays that no one else can. I think for him, it's for me. It's a maybe because I want to see what the number is because I'm worried about some of his skills aging and over the rice for a long-term contract. Well, the the high-end numbers that you're seeing floated around for him are you're talking about 200 million for seven years. Yeah. And that's the top end. That's not terrible for the top end. That's not extraordinarily ridiculous. Baez has put up very similar numbers to Yohannes Cespedes. And I've always thought Baez was a smart player on the field, a very heady player, good base runner, takes a lot of chances, great in the field, and enjoys playing second base next to, to Francisco Lindor. So I, if it was me, again, I would bring Baez back. I think he's somebody that is a core player. And if you have a chance to retain a core type player, you do it. But again, is somebody going to throw gobs of money at Baez to be a shortstop somewhere? I'm looking at St. Louis. You know, they had Paul DeYoung who had a, has had a terrible, terrible year. And if they decide that they want to overspend for a shortstop, they could come in with an offer and blow Baez away. And Baez, again, could say, hey, I could uh, leave the cauldron of New York and go to St. Louis where I'll never get booed and say, you know what? See you later. So, again, I think somebody could blow Baez away, but – I think the Mets should do whatever they can within reason uh, with 200 for seven years being the very top of that. I think if that's the top, I think they should explore it and uh, and try to bring them back. Absolutely. Yeah, I think for me, it's a matter of just what that number is, because for me, it's like it's a matter of resource allocation for the roster. I know Steve Cohen had billions and billions of dollars, but he said I'm not spending like a drunken sailor. And if you're putting almost $600 million in your middle infield, you got to eventually shrimp a little elsewhere. So if you're buying him, you're going to be cutting a corner somewhere else. Yes, absolutely. And, uh, you know, it also, it also depends on who you want to keep elsewhere in your roster. You have other players that can play the middle infield. You have players that can play corner outfield, first base that you have to look at also third base. So it really depends on what you do with the rest of the roster. And also if you keep biased, you have to have some more patient hitters around them in the lineup. What the Mets have too many of is the same type of player, guys that are free swingers, guys that are guest hitters. What uh, uh, the kidding coach Quattlebaum has to do with that, I'm not sure, but I think he's made the, he's made that lineup worse since he replaced uh, Chili Davis. A lot again, a lot of guys have had uh, bad years, and you have to look at the hitting coach as a factor. But if you keep Baez, and Baez has improved a lot since those first couple of weeks in terms of uh, in terms of staying patient and not swinging at every single slider on the outside corner, if if you bring him back, you got to be sure that you can bring in uh, guys with other skill sets in that roster that can complement him a little better than what they have. 
And also, I know the people on Twitter are saying, oh, Robinson Cano, Robinson Cano, he's coming back. Like, there's no chance in hell can he ever play a baseball game for the Mets again. They're going to, I say the Bobby Bonilla scenario, he was going to buy him out and reduce the luxury tax hit. I'm trying to forget that Bobby Cano uh, is still with the team. But it, it's funny, I was lying in bed this morning, and uh, and one of the thoughts in my head is, is uh, as I'm trying to fall back asleep, and one of the thoughts that's going around in my head is, oh, my God, Robinson Cano is going to be on the roster again once the season is over. So, uh, I again, what they do with him, what they do with his money, how they allocate his money, another question that the Mets are going to have to answer. All right. This one, I feel like it's going to be very easy. Aaron Loop has to stay. Yes. Yeah. Aaron Loop, Aaron Loop has to stay. The one thing I will say is that relievers are volatile. Justin Wilson had a great year here, and since he's left, he's been a very mediocre at best. But you can't argue with what Loop has done. Loop has been a uh, not only a good reliever against lefties, but a good crossover guy, which, again, going back to Rojas's head-scratching decisions, Rojas was used a lot of those uh, – a lot of those games in the middle of the season as a lefty specialist when he could have and maybe should have been used more as a one-inning guy, a three-out guy, a crossover guy. Yes, I would do whatever I can within reason to bring Luke back. Yeah, I think one of the Cardinal he's thinking stretch that doesn't get talked about enough with the bullpen usage in the next series was losing Jerry's familiar for the top of the order in the eighth inning, which he had not done all season, where you could have just thrown Aaron Loop there instead of wasting the seventh against the bottom of the order. Right, right, right. And you're talking about the game where he, he uh, gave up the home run, yeah. uh, the two-run homer against St. Louis. Yeah, yeah, you could have also put Trevor May there in the eighth, too. So, uh, yeah, I, and I don't mind. I don't mind if Familia comes back. I don't think Familia's had a necessarily a bad season, but he just has to be used correctly. I know more the Familia should go, Cam. I feel like at this point, we've we've done the cycle enough. I feel like there's got to be other guys out there. I think, like, there's a little bit too much baggage here with him that I feel like this guy's got to linger over him at the longer he goes. Yeah, I, I, listen, it's, it's it's borderline for me. And I've always been the guy that says, hey, let's try something new. I think that's under the Wilpon regime. We've seen a lot of the same players come back over and over again when it's clear it's been past their time in New York. So I'm not sure it's clear that Familia's time is over. I think he's done some good things this year. And certainly he certainly had a nice bounce back year, but I can go either way on Familia. I mean, I would say coin flip, but I would say stay, but it would be 51-49. Okay, uh, Noah Syndergaard right off the pitch. I feel like the the move here is qualifying offer. I'm sure he's going to take it because he needs to rebuild that value. Oh, absolutely. And, uh, you know, the fact that he hasn't come back this year, you know, I've been saying for two years that there was a scenario that he could come back and be a reliever if Diaz had struggled. Maybe they can put somebody with his skill set in the closer's role. And Syndergaard, I, I think, would have been a fascinating experiment. Syndergaard pitching the ninth inning for half a season. But we're not going to see it because it's just taken him too long I think it's beneficial to both sides, uh, him coming back on a qualifying offer. He wants to rebuild his value. And I think the Mets could uh, use somebody with his ceiling uh, in, uh, in the middle of the rotation where hopefully he can bounce back and have a nice year. And then uh, set it, they can set everybody up for success down the road. Yeah, I know the one also that's gone on Twitter that has gotten people crazy as well. Edwin Diaz, the fans say, a lot of fans are saying go. We have a lot of like some of the analytical sites on Twitter saying, you know, advanced stats say he's better. He should stay. It's like. I'm of the opinion, like, I don't think he should be this team's long-term closer. I would be willing to shop him and see what I can get and try and shake the roster up a little bit. What do you think about him? It depends on the value you get back. Uh, Are you going to get a sucker to give you a top prospect like Brody gave away to get Diaz? I'm not sure you can. And then the question becomes who replaces him? Because I don't know if there's anybody on the roster right now that could be their closer and have better results than Diaz has. 
And I'm not sure I would necessarily want to shop Diaz and then pluck somebody else's closer and hope to get better success that way. I think the Mets should be developing their own closers in their minor league system. So I'm not sure if you want to say long-term closer. No, Diaz isn't going to be the closer for 10 years. I think we, I think we know that. I think he's too volatile for that, but I think you could, I think you can live with him for the duration of his contract, which is what two more years that, that uh, he has. I think you could live with him until you can develop a closer on your own. And then hopefully that, that pitcher becomes your next closer. So I'm fine with Diaz staying, uh, but uh, on a very short leash. And I would never, ever, 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 ever let him pitch in Washington, D.C. again. Oh, that's for sure. Ever. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Now these are the three hard ones, I think, to sort out here. Michael Conforto, what do you do with him? Give him the qualifying offer. He's got Scott Boris as his agent, so they're not going to take it. And then I, I think you move on. Uh, just I, I don't know if I don't know if he's going to come back. If he takes the qualifying offer, then you know, l- listen, you you go from there. I don't know how patient I would be waiting for that big year from for Conforto. I think everybody thought it was going to happen this year in his contract year that he was going to come out and uh, and dominate. But the other side of it is, listen, he had uh, COVID nineteen at the beginning of the year. Who knows how that affected him at the beginning of the year. The Mets, I think with not only with Conforto, but with other players, I think the Mets have to gamble that some of these down years were because of circumstances like injuries or illness or uh, or the overall hitting philosophy and that these guys can bounce back. I think there's some very tricky decisions on on individual players, whether they're free agents or not whether they're going to bounce back or whether what you saw this year is what you're going to get in the future. I think with Conforto, I think the answer is he goes because I think you can replace him with somebody that balances out the lineup a little better, like say a Nick Castellanos, if you want to go that route, or maybe even a Chris Bryant, if you want to bring him into play right field and bring in a a legitimate right-handed power threat. So I think it's like you said before, there's, there's other bats out there. So I think if you're going to upgrade somewhere, you're going to upgrade over, over Conforto. But that's, again, that's just me. Yeah, I think I play the same way. I give him the qualifying offer. He takes it fantastic. He's in right field next year. If he's not, like, best of luck on the free agent market. You want to come back to an offer at the end, it's fine. But I'm, I'm okay letting him go. Yeah, I would, I, would, uh, I would definitely agree with that. Now, if he takes the qualifying offer, then you know, it's, not the worst, it's not the worst thing in the world. But, again, I think long-term – I think the Mets should think about where they go from Conforto. Cause again, I don't know if he's ever going to have that big year. He could have nice years. I don't know if he's ever going to have that big year. All right. The two that are here, they're the most challenging Dom Smith. I personally am on the go side. Cause I feel like the left field thing, they've got as much as they could out of it. He's not a left fielder. He needs to play first base somewhere. It's not going to be here as long as they want to keep the, D, the eventual DH spot as a rotating thing and not, or bring someone else in for, it. I think, they have to move Dom for something that they can use somewhere else in the roster. I don't think this left field thing's going to work anymore. Dom's very tricky because of everything you said. Now, there's going to be a designated hitter in the National League next year, I believe, and I think most people believe that. So Dom is one of those guys, if you, if you can get Pete Alonso to be on board with being the designated hitter and say, look, we're going to get a lot more out of Dom if he plays first base and you become our designated hitter. And if he's on board with it, I keep Dom because Dom, 
did have the wrist injury this year that I think uh, kept him from having the season he wanted to have and to, to ha- keep him from having the seasons that he had in uh, the season that he had in 2020. So I think in that case, you keep him. But I think if it's any other circumstance where you have to have him rotating in the, in the outfield with other players, then I think you have to let him go. I think you have to let him go for the, the team's sake and you have to let him go for his sake. The, uh, the only problem is you're, you're trading him at depressed value. So you're not going to get as much for him as you, as you should get for a guy like Dom Smith. So I, I'd hate to let him go, but I think in most scenarios, I think it would behoove the Mets to find an option for him to play elsewhere. And I hate to say that breaks my heart, but I, I think that that's the truth. Yeah. I think this for the benefit of Dom, I think Dom needs to play first base somewhere. And it's not going to be here. I mean, you're looking at your options, say it's Dom and Pete as DH, or you're looking at Pete at first base. I'm like Nick Castellanos, DH, I probably prefer the latter route. Yeah, I, I would, I would agree with that. All right. And the one who I am ready to send on the raft, like we did with Todd Frazier, JD Davis. I do not understand this fan base's fascination with him. He hits, that's it. He cannot play the field anywhere. I've seen Met fan on Twitter saying, put him in right field if you re-sign Javi Baez. Makes no sense to me whatsoever. Like, this is this franchise that Steve Cohen said, I want to become the East Coast Dodgers. And the Dodgers would not take J.D. and say, okay, you're handed right field with no competition. So that's what frustrates me. It's like, he's a guy, you said on online, it's like, this is a guy who shoot the third base of the Baltimore Orioles. He should not be playing, on, like, starting for the Mets. Yeah, he's, he's a designated hitter. To me, and he's another guy that you could you could keep in a certain situation, and that certain situation is he's the full time designated hitter. But I don't know, like you said, the Mets might not have a full time designated hitter. They might rotate guys in and out of that position. And I think if they're going to do that, I, I think Davis is going to be elsewhere. I also think there was a there were there was a time where you just you look at Davis and you look at his approach at the plate and you think, man, we can't uh, we can't take much more of this and then he can hit if Davis can rake his, his stats are very, very good, but are they that good that he can't be upgraded over? And that's why I just, I get this feeling that he's just gone that when they're looking to, to remake the roster and you have to remake the roster for a 500 team. If you want to be, like you said, if you want to be the East coast Dodgers, or if you just want to be a perennial contender for a division title every year, you have to upgrade at certain spots. And I think Davis is one of those guys you just, you can find an upgrade for. All right. That's our thoughts on the current Mets. Let's have a little more fun. We'll go back to the 86 Mets. A documentary came out this week, Once Upon a Time in Queens, four-part documentary on ESPN's 30 for 30. I have to say, I enjoy this a lot. I had a lot of fun with this. What did you think about watching this? When they first announced that the 30 for 30 doc was coming, that it was going to be four parts. I think originally they said it was going to be six parts. I, I kind of cringed because ESPN was obviously looking to capitalize on their success with the last dance with the uh, bulls, uh, 10 part documentary. And the difference there was that they had all this footage that nobody has ever seen before. Whereas with the 86 Mets, the, the story has been told and retold and retold over and over and over again. And I'm not sure that there was a, so much extra footage that they could have found. I wasn't sure about that. So that was one of the questions I had. What are they going to give us that's new that we don't know already? And I understand that a lot of this doc was, was produced for people of a younger generation that didn't experience the 86 Mets and people around the country that probably didn't know that you could have a team full of, uh, full of wild, crazy animals like they did in 86. So 
so I was wondering how they were going to approach it. And I think considering all of that, they really did a fantastic job. You know, there were there were some new nuggets in there that I didn't know. The, the, the story with Bobby Ojeda flying to Washington, getting a shot in his arm right before game six against the Houston series and then flying back to New York and then flying back to Houston. That was something I didn't know. Uh, the story with uh, Doc Gooden's parents, where his mom shot his dad after uh, finding out that he was cheating on her, which is like, whoa. And then and then everything involving Keith Hernandez, yeah. you know, uh, the whole movies that he produced, the relationship with his father that he went into detail about. He would always mention his father during the broadcast, but he never mentioned it in that in in that scenario where uh, with the uh, fear strikes out as the backdrop, that kind of domineering father relationship. And then the other thing that he that he brought, which fascinated me, he had told a story a lot about that he was in Davies' office during the game six rally against Boston because this chair has hits in it. We've heard that so many times, but how many times have you heard him say, I regretted being in that chair because I should have been with, with my teammates. That was something he never conveyed before. And that was fascinating. So there were, there was enough for the diehard fans like me that were, that were alive at that time that, you know, I was 16, I was 15, 16 during the uh, 1986 season. So I, I watched everything. And then I, I soaked in every bit of knowledge on that team because they are fascinating and you're never going to have a team like that again, but they still came up with new stuff. And I thought that was excellent. Yeah, I think the new stuff did help us a lot because he said these, it's been like a million different tellings of the story, whether it's like something the Mets produce and the network, I'm sure, has done stuff. There's been references to it throughout, but like those like nuggets, like getting all these players like on, be interviewed here, I think that was what really separated this because I don't think I've seen that many collections of guys from the 86 team all in one documentary before. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And I think, and I could have had more, you know, I, uh, I don't think they interviewed Jesse Orozco. For this, or at least I don't remember be, him being in it a lot. I would have, you know, and he was one of the guys that was mentioned as being one of the uh, the scum bunch. So, you know, I thought we could have heard from McDowell a little bit more. He was there. Uh, Orozco, I don't I don't even remember him being in it. And I think you could have heard from him a little bit more. I was disappointed to hear that George Foster refused to be interviewed for this because um, I really would have loved to have heard his uh, his point of view about being released about the whole thing where he said the Mets would rather promote a white player than a black player. I would have loved to have heard his side of the story. But again, that was another one of those uh, new nuggets that we did hear involving George Foster, that he was actually at game six against Boston. And he told Ann Ligori with two outs in the ninth, this isn't over yet. Yeah. George Foster of all people <laughs> said this wasn't over when, when the Mets were at their lowest point. I thought that was fascinating. Yeah, and obviously you lived it. You mentioned it. Like, I was negative three when this thing happened, so I was not even a thought yet for the 86 Mets. So, like, compared to, like, what you experienced here, like, how true to, like, your experience with that team was this documentary? Did it bring, like, all this stuff coming back? Because I think this fascinating. Some of the stuff, like, they went into, like, what New York State was like, especially that scene where they showed, like, everybody, like, watching the TVs and Game 6 was on and, like, all the TV stores and stuff like that. Absolutely. Uh, that happened for sure. I mean, you got to remember there was no, there was no internet, there was no Twitter back then. So everybody went and found a, uh, a television in the, in the window of a store and was watching the game there. You know, I never, it, everybody had transistor radios back then and snuck it in their ear. You know, I, I got home for game six against Houston after a long day at school. And I, I saw the first inning uh, when the Astros took a three, nothing lead. I fell asleep 
And then I woke up when it was still three, nothing in the ninth. And I'm like, damn it. We didn't come back. We didn't, we didn't we're going to lose this game. And then the ninth inning rally happened. So I, I, uh, I fell asleep through the most boring part of the game, which was, which is fortunate for me, but yeah, that was very, very true to life. Um, you know, there, again, the stories have been told and retold. So you saw a lot of that footage that they got for that came from the 1986 uh, home movie that they, uh, that they produced in the off season that year. So, and it had a lot of that footage of everybody watching on television back then, but yeah, it was really, the, the city was really engulfed in the, in the 86 Mets, considering how much they dominated and then they faced Mike Scott. That was, you know, that was for, you know, we don't have the, we didn't have the 24 hour news cycle we, uh, that we have now, but Mike Scott was in that news cycle for, for two weeks, for those two weeks, everybody was, was obsessed with, was Mike Scott cheating? You know, I wrote a college paper on was Mike Scott cheating? Yeah. So there was, uh, yes, I thought that that, that that part of it, it was very true to life. It wasn't uh, hyperbole at all. Yeah, I think also the thing that caught my eye and it's something like something again, somebody who hasn't lived it, sort of read about it. It was like all I heard throughout my time was, oh, like Gary Carter was the biggest piece of that 8016. Gary Carter was the final piece, put them over the top. And you, you hear all this whole team. It's like, oh, like we didn't really like Gary that much. Keith Hernandez was our leader on this team. And Gary, they only took him seriously. Like, that surprised me. That surprised me a little bit too, but not not as much as you would think. And I still think that Gary Carter was the final piece that they needed. They needed another middle of the order bat to, to support Hernandez and strawberry. And it needs needed somebody that could support that pitching staff. I mean, think about it. You had, everybody talked about the, the mythical five aces with DeGrom and Harvey and Syndergaard and Mats and, uh, and Bartolo, but the real five aces were on that 80, 16. You're talking, and you're talking about five different personalities that came and brought it every night. And you needed a catcher that could manage those personalities that knew their game. And Carter was the, was the best catcher in the game. So I think to kind of, to, uh, to minimize his effect on that team is wrong. But then on the flip side, to, to say that Hernandez was the real captain of that team. Well, yeah, of course he was the real captain of that team. Remember in 1987, they named Keith Hernandez, the captain. They didn't name Gary Carter, the captain. Keith was always thought of as the leader of that team. They only made Carter the co-captain in 88 because, because he complained about it, yeah. because he spoke about it. He was the one that said, hey, I want to be a captain too. So they acquiesced and they let Carter be a co-captain with Keith in, in uh, 88. But when it was time to name a captain, there was really only, only one choice, and that was Keith. And uh, you know, he, was, he really came out looking – looking incredible in this documentary. Like you said, he was the leader of that team. He was very forthcoming with his relationship with his father and, and with the, uh, with the whole thing about, uh, about the, about uh, being in the manager's office and uh, Keith and with everybody speaking glowingly of Keith. I mean, yeah, it's uh, it didn't surprise me as much as maybe it surprised you that he was the real leader of that team because he was, but Gary Carter did have a, a very uh, a significant impact on the 86 Mets for sure. It's also very on brand for Keith to have Haji with him for every interview he did. Listen, we all know that uh, as pet owners or former pet owners, that if you if you're on Zoom and your cat wants to be on on Zoom, cat wants to be on camera, you let the cat be on camera. They are the king, the kings and queens of our of our dwellings here. That's and anybody anybody with a cat knows that. Yeah, for sure. I also think for me, I, I, one of my favorite parts of this thing was like obviously some of the behind the scenes stories. I got not because like all the on field stuff. Yeah, I know about this and like stuff like finding out like the, the how much damage it did to the plane when they came back from Houston on the way from winning the winning the championship and Davey Johnson in the locker room was, was ripping it up saying we're not paying this, we're winning a championship. Like 
that stuff was great. And I also love the random anecdotes you got about players like Chuck Kerfell from the Astros and how he was like this, basically this doofus and like he was trying to antagonize the Mets. And I thought that stuff like that was fun. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Kerfeld was uh, one of those guys when, when uh, we first saw him, I think we first saw him uh, in that, in the series in Houston where they got swept, uh, they got swept by Houston right before the all-star break four game series. And then it was right after that, that the Cooters thing happened where the four players got, uh, got arrested but we 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 knew about charlie kerfeld then and we thought you know, this guy is a goofball how is he how is he a pitcher and then he comes in the uh, nlcs and he and he was dominating he you know that they showed that play against carter where he where he showed him the ball and threw the first but he dominated up until game five he was a good pitcher and he wound up being a good a good scout but yeah you could tell uh that was one of those stories that that uh, we did here uh actually quite recently that that carter was not pleased when Kerfell did that to him and that, uh, that really, uh, that set up the game five at bat where it got him out of his slump. And I thought they would go into that a little bit more, how, how, uh, how Carter was upset at the, at the Kerfell play in game three. But, uh, but yeah, that was, uh, Kerfell's one of those fun stories in baseball, man. Yeah. I also love the part where when they got Jay Harwood's like a hooker in Montreal, that was hilarious. Oh my God. Yes. That, yeah, that again, one of those stories you didn't know, up until now, it's, it's that fresh story that they brought uh, to the table. I I, I enjoyed that. <laughs> he said he had a bad knee. Yeah. So, the, okay, maybe that's a euphemism for something. I don't <laughs> know, but we'll just leave it at that. Yeah, and in terms of the people they got, they did get a lot of the teams. Like you said, you mentioned Noah Roscoe. Are you, are you surprised they actually managed to track down and get in this documentary? The guy that surprised me that showed up was Terry Pendleton. Yeah. Because he wasn't even on the team. And then when I you saw him early in the documentary talk about something else, and I kind of let out a, an exhale, like, oh, my God, they're going to they're going to talk about the home run in 1987 at some point, aren't we? And I was at that game where Pendleton hit the home run on in 1987 that basically buried the Mets. They were going to with a win. They would have been a half a game back of the Cardinals. And they had, had a, that that season was a struggle. They had a lot of guys get hurt. Doc, as you know, got suspended for the first uh, couple of months of the season with the uh, drug uh, with the drug addiction. And then, but they had made their way back. And if they had won that Friday night game and they were up, I believe five, one in that game. Um, and they were one strike away, but Pendleton moves up in the box, hits that home run and uh, they go on it and they, they lose that game to go back to two and a half back. And, and that was it. So once I saw Pendleton, I was surprised. That was the guy that surprised me that was in it. But that said, you know, they talked about in the last 15 minutes of the show, how the 86 Mets unraveled. And it was almost like a quick edit at the end, which I thought they did it really well. It reminded me of the end of a show called Six Feet Under, which I don't know if you've watched uh, Six Feet Under on HBO. I have not. Okay, so basically what Six Feet Under was, it was a show about a family that ran a, uh, a funeral home. Yeah. And at the beginning of every episode, somebody would die. And they would show his panel with his, na- his or her name and you know, born this date, uh, dead this date. And the the episode would revolve around that person and their family and the people at the funeral home. So the show lasted, I think, like four or five years or something. And the end of the show, they fast forwarded that like the youngest daughter moves away and they fast forwarded through the show to every major character's death. And then they would have their panel come up, their name and the, the birth and death date. And it was edited in a, in a quick sort of way, like maybe five, 10 minutes. That's what the end of Once Upon a Time in Queens reminded me of, where they showed everybody's demise from that 86 team going forward. Strawberry leaving, Knight leaving, uh, Dykstra getting traded. 
and, and on and on and on, which I thought was fascinating. But I think that you could make the demise of the Mets. You could take the years from 86 until 93 and make that into a four-hour documentary. I would be fascinated to watch that and see interviews with some of those major players. I mean, who wouldn't want to hear from Greg Jeffries about that time in New York where he was the hot shot rookie and then they treated him badly and then he just couldn't get his footing. And who wouldn't want to hear from, from Randy Myers about getting pulled or about not coming into the game to face Mike Shosha in, uh, in game four of the NLCS in 88, another game I was at, by the way, it was cold that night. So, but I thought the way they edited that, all that at the end was, uh, was a great, was great. They did a great job with that. Yeah, in terms of the guys that didn't get, I do think I agree with you. Jesse Rock was the pride, probably the most notable name from the '86 guys they didn't get. I was surprised he didn't get more. I get parts probably because they cut from six parts to four. I had to release some stuff on the cutting room floor. We didn't really get anybody who actually was like covering the team, like and like day to day. That in the movie that surprised me. I also think like of all the other players, like I'm surprised we didn't get anything from Mike Scott. And I feel like considering he was such like the boogeyman at ALCS, like I thought them or somebody from the Red Sox, we didn't really get much from them either. Right. Well, we did have Calvin Chiraldi. Yeah. So that was, you know, he's never been shy about talking about that. But Scott, I'm not surprised they didn't get. Because Scott always seemed to be very close to the best with that information. You knew he, you know, he's never going to, uh, never, never going to admit that he scuffed the ball. But I did appreciate Ed Hearn bringing the ball out that, that Scott uh, supposedly scuffed and, yeah. and looked at it. Apparently, Ed Hearn has like 20, 30, 40 balls in his basement. Yeah. You saw the one. Yeah. But he's apparently has more than that. And the the uh, the way it was scuffed was so obvious. How do people not see that? Yeah. <laughs> I think a different game back then. They're kind of like, ah, play on. Right, yeah. exactly. Yeah. But that but that seemed to, you know, there's scuff marks and there's scuff marks. Yeah. And that that Mike Scott thing looked like it looked like a moon crater, that scuff mark. My goodness. Yeah, I think also in terms of that ending sequence you mentioned where they basically talk about what went wrong with them. I think that would have been like part five if they had done that sort of like the fallout of this. But I think like they basically simplified it to say, hey, 87, when they traded away Kevin Mitchell and when they let Ray Knight leave, that was really what broke this team apart. Do you agree with that? I do agree with that because we all knew it then. Yeah. We all knew it in that moment. Man, we're going to regret losing Ray Knight, and we're going to regret losing Kevin uh, Kevin Mitchell. Now, Kevin McReynolds was a very good player. He was an underrated player. I don't think he got enough credit for the job he for the job he did. He was a good defensive left fielder. He could hit. You know, he hit well enough in '88 that he stole some MVP votes from Daryl Strawberry, which let Kirk Gibson win the award in '88, which I thought was ridiculous that he won. Now he certainly proved that he earned it in the playoffs, but MVP is regular season as you know, and I thought Strawberry should have won in, uh, in 88, but Kevin McReynolds took some of those votes away from him. He was that good, but Kevin McReynolds wasn't that guy. He was a duck hunter from Arkansas that just wanted to play ball and go home. Whereas you had guys, whereas Ray Knight was a gold gloves boxing champion that, that was going to fight for you and have your back. And Kevin Mitchell was the same way. So, and just, just by the very fact that Kevin Mitchell went on to be an MVP in 1989, I think that shows you that, you know, teams, that team lived because they had an edge. You can never have the 86 Mets back if you don't have that edge. Now, case in point, that team, uh, the team in 1988 was probably better on paper than the 86 Mets were. And that's saying a lot, but did they have it? Maybe not. Yeah, maybe not. And I think in terms of the doc itself, like, you mentioned, obviously, before, we think Keith's probably the big winner in this doc because, like, his reputation gets so burnt by this one. I will say, though, 
I do think Lenny Dykes is probably one of the highlights of the documentary because like he was so honest. He was so like not afraid, afraid to be not PC. I feel like you got the real Lenny Dykes. Right? I feel like he was probably the big winner of this. You see, I think he's a winner too, but for a different reason. Cause I, I do think I would have loved to have seen, or maybe I would have hate, hated to have seen what was on the cutting room floor. Cause yeah. they could have, I was expecting a lot more vitriol from Lenny. Yeah. Like he, like he has thrown out on social media towards Ron Darling. You know, I was kind of cringing at it, honestly, you know, they, but they edited the way they edited it. They made Lenny look like a lovable uncle. Yeah. And that is a feat in itself. I give the, the editors and the producers and the directors a lot of credit for making a guy with the history that Lenny Dykstra has into this lovable kind of sweet old uncle, you know, I mean, that, that takes some talent too. Uh, the, but uh, yeah, I think he, I think he came out looking better than most people thought he would. Yeah. I do think he looked great. I do think it's so hard also, cause there's so much, so many guys who had big roles in his neck. I do feel like there are points where I only try to give you a lot of doc and doc and Daryl feel like they did get lost in the shuffle at times. Uh, yeah, I think th- they, they might've, but their stories were compelling that you didn't need to force feed him to, yeah. you know, the, the stories about doc missing the parade, the story about strawberry, where his father told him he, he would never amount to anything in life. I mean, that's, that's stuff that, that hits you. That's uh, I don't, I'm not sure they were lost in the shuffle because their stories were so powerful. I, and I will add this. I was, I was glad to see a lot of Sid Fernandez in yeah. the, uh, in the doc. I didn't think we'd see as much of him as we did. So it was good to see a lot of Sid. Plus, they had that Doc and Daryl doc from it was it came out a couple of years ago. So they may, they might not have been trying to like redo that as much. Maybe I can explain right. a little bit. Yeah, exactly. That's a great point. Yeah. All right, uh, John. Thanks for all the time. I really appreciate. It. Before I let you go, how can people follow you on social media? Of what we're doing over at Metzradamus. I'm an easy one. Uh, I'm at Metzradamus on Twitter, and then uh, you go to the Sports Daily. You can see my writings and uh, and as well as your writings on there. You just click on uh, the SportsDaily.com and you click on Mets, and you find. Uh, you find the two of us and uh, we'll be there for you to, to get you through the rest of this season and the off season. Absolutely. John, thanks for all the time. I really appreciate it. Anytime, my friend, you take care now. Show me the money. That's right. It's time to show me the money. NFL picks for week number three here on the podcast. Joining me today, Somebody who I've had a lot of fun talking about with Star Wars this summer. We on softball championship. His football team not doing so well. Nick Friad is here. Nick, how are you? Uh, besides my football team doing great, as you mentioned, uh, all that other stuff's been great. Star Wars has been great. Softball, but the football team, that, that is the New York football giants, less than ideal. Yeah, and I thought I had a bad week of my quarterback through four interceptions. You guys might have been worse. Yeah, I mean, we were... We, could have won the game, but at the same time, should we have, you know, like he missed that field goal and then we, you know, we, he got to kick it again, but why did we get the ball back at all? Why were they throwing the ball with two minutes left to up winning on second down? Yeah. That, that whole. So why we even had a chance in that game was weird, but yeah, yeah this is a very concerning season. Yeah. I mean, all the mistakes that game, I mean, going down, you have the holding penalty wipe out a touchdown from Daniel Jones, who just again, continues to own Washington, but you want to see him doing against the rest of the league. You had Terry Slayton drop a touchdown in the end zone. You have Joe Judge go conservative when they get that miraculous pick and sell for three for the least. They're trying to go for the kill and the touchdown. And then you have Dexter Lawrence, who somehow is over the ball, winds up offside. I know he argues that the rest missed the call, but don't make it close enough for them to miss it. I mean, all those mistakes just add up. Yeah. And then that's the story of the Giants the last nine years. 
it's how many mistakes can we make? It's still possible to lose a game. And somehow, some way, they've found a way over these last nine years, you know, minus that one year in the playoffs, but to only one of those years really just suck. Yeah. They're always just bad, below average, whatever. And and it's and I think that's why a lot of these people still have jobs. I think we all know who I'm talking about here. Yes. Because they haven't imploded yet. They going six and ten, whatever, you know, six and eleven this year. I, that's what I think they'll end up at. But like they're not going three and thirteen, three and fourteen, two and fourteen, where it's enough to be like, all right, obviously you're at, let's start over. And they haven't really, and it's crazy to say this because it's been how many years now? Five years has been in the playoffs. Nine years where I'm, I'm sure we all know they've been the worst team in the league since the boat trip. Yep. I think they're probably the worst team in the league since 2012, too. I, I think that's got to be tough because, I mean, my team's been pretty bad since then. The Jaguars have not been good either. So I think that's. Yeah, it's going to be close, though. Yep. It's gonna be, at least the Jaguars had that year. You know, they were in the AFC championship game. The Giants year was only 11 wins. So I don't know. But even if they're not the worst, they're probably up there. And throughout that time, in the nine years, they still have not said, we're bad, let's rebuild. Yet, it still hasn't happened. The thing that alarms me is, like, you look at that team. I mean, they've gone, for you guys, it's they've gone at least all in two and eight of the last nine years. It's not even like, oh, like, we're collapsing late. It's like, they're basically, like, ruining their season right at the start. It's actually the opposite, which is, again, another reason why they're not giving up is because they're starting 0 and 2 last year they were 1 and 7. Yeah. But then they end 6 and 10. So whole the whole off season is oh well at least we ended well we're going to do well next year and then it happens again and again and again. If it was the other way around, if they started 6 know, and 1. Let's I, I, that's a little much, but you know, if they started like 5 and 3 and ended 6 and 10, they would have fired the guys. Yeah. So there it's people are holding on to their jobs because of that. So it's, it's a really concerning season. And I mentioned this to a lot of people that what concerns me the most about this season is the defense because it looks like set 2017, how they were coming off hot of 2016's defense. Last year's defense was pretty pretty good also. It was, it was pretty good defense last year. And now it looks awful. The same way it did in 2017, it looked awful. Yeah, the thing that concerns me about that defense, I, know Paul, I talked to WF fans, Paul Latino, preseason, so I got, oh, this is the, the strength of the team, the second be top three in the NFL. It's like, they have let average quarterbacks just slice them up. I mean, Taylor Heineke threw for over 350 yards. Teddy Bridgewater only had eight incomplete passes in that game. Teams have been able to do whatever they want against the Giants so far. That's a big problem. The DS also the strength of the team. Yeah, I, there's, there's really no other way to put it, nothing to add to that. If your defense is the strength and you're getting lit up by, I'm not going to say Teddy Bridgewater is bad, but average. He's, he's no Tom Brady. You yeah. know, like they're playing Tom Brady. In a few weeks, I don't know how many, but maybe I think it's like week eight or week nine. Yeah. Then what? I mean, yeah. Although, you know what? Somehow last year, somehow when they were one and seven, they are one and six, they almost beat the Bucks. Yeah. Which is just weird. I don't know how they do that. Sometimes they just play to their company. They do play to their competition a lot. The Giants are usually in a close game. So at least they're, at least you get a little bit of an exciting game every week out of them. Most of the time. Yeah. How do you feel about the head coach? Because I feel like now the the shine started to come off with Joe Judge a little bit. Because I feel like for a guy supposed to be disciplinary and supposed to be, oh, I'm coming the Patriot way. We're going to be execute, execute, execute. They make a lot of mistakes. I haven't. I I, I can't say I don't like him, but I, I, the general idea is that he's so good and he's like protected. He seems like someone who like, no matter what, will never. The Giant fan will never turn their back on them, and I want to just. 
know, stop all the giant fans there and be like, listen, I don't think he is the problem with this team, but if they're not good, don't be afraid to say he's not good. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. He, he, he may not be part of the solution. may not be the direct problem. Yeah. Yeah. I think for sure. And I think you look ahead to week three. I mean, they got a game here against the Falcons coming in who are also bad. This is a game that you want to have any kind of year. You have to win this game. Because you got Dallas coming up. you got the Rams coming up. you got a lot of good teams the next couple of weeks. So I think if you're losing this game going 0-3, it's going to be a very, very, very long season. Yeah. they. I think they're going to win this game. I mean, they're favored in this game. I, I think they will win. I just – Atlanta's bad. But Atlanta can score. So if the Giants are not going to score, they're going to lose. <laughs> Simple as that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Atlanta put up 25 on Tampa Bay. They got a good defense. So they can put up, I can see them putting up high 30s on the Giants and having a shootout, maybe. But is Jones good enough to win a shootout? We'll see. I mean, this is a pretty decent matchup for them. Yeah. To be fair to the Giants, though, Atlanta's defense also stinks. They give up, they give up a ton of points to Eagles League 1, too. And the league, Eagles did nothing week two offensively against the 49ers. So I would think that this game's going to be high scoring. Yeah. I would, I, I, if the Giants can do it, which. If they can block somebody, I think they could Yeah, score 35 points or so. I think they have a chance to win the game, but I don't think they're going to win this game scoring less than 30, 35 yeah. even. Yeah, this game is not going to be 21-17. It's going to be high scoring. Oh, I, I think if you score 24 points, you lose. Yeah, I could easily see that. I think this week is very important for them because, again, look at that schedule coming up here. With I think the Cowboys are up soon. The Rams are up soon. The Saints, I know they're up and down, but they do have the capability to score a lot of points. Like This could get very ugly. Yeah. It could, and there were a lot of games going into the season that I looked at the schedule and I said, there's only like two or three games that I feel like they can't, they really can't win. And now that we're two weeks in and I see how they've played against these two teams, I flip that around and I go, there's only like one or two games on the schedule that I know they can win. Yeah, and one of them is this week. Yeah. Yeah, yeah but going into the year, the only games that I was actually like, they have no chance are the Rams the Bucks and the Chiefs. Yeah. Now, now I look at the Raiders. I'm like, there's no chance. Yeah. It's one thing. Also, you look at the Giants here. It's like those. The thing about Bozzy Moore is like those are two games here. Denver coming into the into the Meadowlands and Washington. I show you that Ryan Fitzpatrick. Those are two games that like a team that's supposed to be contending should win. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If the Giants were what people thought they were, now keep in mind. The West of the world did not think this about the Giants. This is only in our market who thought this. Yes. That they were going to be good. You know, the, the, if they performed that way, the people thought they would here, they would be 2-0, and probably 3-0, and and start, you know, start like 5-3 and or so, 4-3. Yeah. and three. But you got to know this if you didn't. So I know you do the over-unders on the show. Yes. The Giants over-under was 7.5. And if you took the under for the Giants, you had the worst odds of any over-under in the entire NFL. And if you took the over, it was the opposite. You had the best odds, meaning everyone took the under on the Giants. Guilty as charged. I took the under. Yeah. I think that means, based on the way the, the, the numbers were, I think it was like plus 180 to take the over and minus yeah. 160 for the under or yeah. something like that. Similar. That means they have the worst possible chance, if you want to go by the odds, to finish over their over-under. Yeah. I tell, so, yeah, they, what does that tell you? It tells you that the world at large not believe the Giants are a good team. Right, but I know in this area, most yeah. people, like myself included, I thought they would win nine games, eight games, finish around 500. Yeah. 
But now I'm, you know, well, that's what I thought going into the preseason. And then as the season got closer, I, I just started saying to myself, if they can't block, they're going to win four games, five games. Yeah, it's like also it's weird because like compared to like my team where my, my team is young. I know they're supposed to be bad. Then they have these games where like last week the quarterback is okay and then the line can't block and they lose. And then this week everybody about the quarterback play well. It's like I'm going to see a lot of that where it's like some parts are bad, some parts are good. And like eventually they'll put together this complete game and just win one of these. They're like I don't – I'm hoping at the end they become more consistent. The Giants, like that was supposed to be them last year. Now they're supposed to take the step forward. They haven't yet. Yeah. Yeah. The Jets at least have something to look forward to. The Giants I have to look forward to is more negative. Yeah. I'm hoping more so that, let's say Jones is not the answer, that they find out now instead of wasting another year saying, is he the answer? Is he not the answer? But he didn't have a line. What if he had a line? What if someone gets hurt? What if, like, Galladay gets hurt? They're like, well, he, you know, we can't really tell if he was good or not because Galladay was out. Like, I don't want any more excuses. Just – See what happens this year if he's not good, which I don't think he will be. Get him out of here. Yeah, for sure. And let's get to the picks. The reason you're here this week, and I got to say, last week on the picks here was not a banner one on this podcast. It was pretty bad. I'm, I'm gonna say, just throw this out here at the start. Kevin Lillis is on last week for his picks. He went 0 three. He took the football team laying the points against the Giants. The Giants did get that right. They covered the number. So uh, I <clears throat> did too. Yeah. I took the football team laying the points, but I also bet on the Giants' money line. So I lost both. That's brutal. Yeah. Yeah, he had that yeah. one. Yeah, the Steelers laying the five and a half at home against the Raiders, and the Raiders came in one outright. That one shocked the hell out of me. Yeah, that was a shocking game. Yeah, and he also had, to cap it off, he had the Chiefs laying the three and a half in Sunday night game against the Ravens, and I think it was a great game. It's a fantastic game. I can't blame him yeah. for that one because I would have taken that too. That's a tough spot to have all those picks go wrong. Right, yeah. That was, that was a fantastic game. That was a fun watch. Yeah, I also had a rough week here. I went 0-3 as well. It was not pretty here, dude. What the hell's going on out here? Take the Dolphins. I had the Dolphins laying three and a half, getting three and a half at home. Tua Tagovailoa gets hurt early in that game, and even then they got themselves around the building of the Bills. If you took 10 three and a halves, it still would have lost. Yes. I had I had the Saints laying a three and a half. They laid an egg in Carolina. That one was not good either. I took the Falcons getting the getting all those points, 11 and a half. Looked good for about three quarters, and Matt Ryan throws two straight pick sixes and ends my, ends my dream of getting a win. Yeah, that wasn't the worst call because, you know, in a game like that, you could be up by 10 and then just kind of call it quits and then a gar- or be up 17 and then a garbage time touchdown. You end yeah. up 10 and that could be the game. So that wasn't that that one was just kind of bad luck for you. And there's that many points involved. It's really just luck, I think. Yeah, literally, if Matt Ryan throws one less pick six to Edwards, I win that pick. Yeah. <laughs> Which is, again, just really bad luck. Yeah, well, that's the way it goes. It's not easy. No. Bets are not easy. That's why the spread, that's why these people are paid in Vegas. Yes, yeah, well. Yeah, so far the challengers here are two and four. I'm one and five. So really, we need to get this ship moving in the right direction. Start getting some some wins on the board. Well, team challengers can count on me. All right, let's get this going here. You're up first for the challengers. You have three picks here. Where are you going? Pick number one. My number one pick, which is I guess you can say my most confident, is Seattle. They're they're um, they're giving one and a half in Minnesota. I think that Minnesota can't kick the ball all so they're gonna lose a game probably by three points because of that and they get uh, seattle I, I just can't see seattle starting one and two i think they're too good for that yeah now you, you could flip side that and say the vikings are too good to start out with three but are they 
It's a fair, it's a fair point. I mean, that game, I was looking at it at paper. I'm like, this thing's a really weird line because Seattle last week, a couple calls go their way. They probably beat the Titans at home. And then Minnesota, that kicker, my goodness, that was an awful miss to end the game there. And I don't trust either team in that game. So that's what I was like, uh, I'm going to stay away from that game. Well, uh, go Hawks. Go Hawks. Pick two. I'm going to do Tampa Bay. And I'm going to take the points there. I think um, I think Brady is still as good as he's ever been. I just think the Bucks' offense is going to be really hard to stop. And this is going to be a great game. And I really wanted to make sure that that game specifically, I had something riding on so I can watch that game, you know, and have some more rooting interest in just like fantasy purposes and whatnot. Yeah, that game's going to be absolutely fantastic. And getting Tom Brady's underdog is always great value. Yeah, Tom Brady in L.A. on prime time. Yeah. Not much better, huh? Not, not much better here. Where are you going with pick three? My third pick is going to be the Patriots, Tom Brady's former team, and they are giving three to New Orleans. So um, this is what I love about the NFL. We're three weeks in now, two weeks in, whatever. You know, two weeks have passed. This is our third week. And you can only kind of judge teams based on stories. Yeah. So, like, I can see the Saints as they crushed the Packers, but then they got crushed by the Panthers. So in week three, we're going to find out what's the real Saints. Is it the one that got crushed week two or the one that crushed week one? I'm going with the one that got crushed week two, and I think the Patriots are going to do a good job against it. But I could easily be wrong, and the Saints from week one can show up again. Yeah, it's also interesting because I don't really know what to make of the Patriots either because I watched that game last week. They did not do that well against the Jets. I mean, the Jets gave them 16 points on turnovers right there thanks to the Zach Wilson picks. And, like, Bill was playing check down Charlie with Matt Jones. And, like, this one where, like, are they that good? Like, are they going to get smacked with a good team? And I don't know if New Orleans is it. So that's one, like, I'm probably staying away. We got a lot to learn in this game, huh? Yeah. And speaking of the Saints, if they giant, if they are hope, opening the dome against the Giants, that's going to be another brutal spot for them. Oh, it's, if that game... It's not in the dome. It's a, it's a decent game. Yeah. If that game's in the dome, I, I would I would I would probably take the Saints minus a touchdown. Yeah. Maybe maybe nine. Yeah. All right. That's those are your picks on the board. So you're locking those in. Lock them in. All right. Pick number one. I'm going head to head with you. One of your picks. I'm taking the Rams in that game, laying the point and a half against the Buccaneers. I think this is a spot where. Tampa beat, played them last year in Tampa, lost the game. It was a, the front seven, got a lot of pressure on Tom Brady. I think they can do that. That's how you beat the Buccaneers. You get pressure on Brady up the middle of Aaron Donald. They have a great front. They have good secondary pieces, and they have the offense to score. Tampa has issues stopping you. We saw that with Dallas and with Atlanta. I think the Rams put up a big number here. I think the Rams are going to win this game. I think taking the Rams, laying the point, I'm going head-to-head with you on that. I'm happy you picked that one because I like that we're going head-to-head on that because that's, that's the game. That's the game of the week. Like, yes. The yes. fact you know, you know what you understand the reasoning with all yep. this TV stuff, but that should be the Sunday night game. I know it can't be, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah, it's the Fox uh, game of the week, I believe. Yeah. All right, that's pick number one. Pick number two. I've got. Two, I'm gonna go underdogs the next two picks. I'm gonna take. Go to Sunday night. Take the Packers getting three and a half in San in at Santa Clara the 49ers. I know that's the basically been their boogeyman the last couple of years, the Niners in San Francisco. But I don't like the way the Niners have played the first two weeks. I know they're very banged up. I Green Bay, I think. The light came on the second half last night against the Lions. Aaron Jones had four touchdowns in that game. Aaron Rodgers made some big plays. I think three and a half, I like the fact they get the hook. Even if they lose, I think it's going to be a close game. So give me the three and a half points of the Packers pick two. Get that pick. Um, who, who is the Niners running back, huh? Yeah, it's like a good question. Depends who can actually yeah. show up and get out of the injury report. I have the guy uh, Sermon, fantasy, yeah. but I... <laughs> 
know, they have like six of them. Yeah, so, one's got concussion, one's got an ankle, one's got a shoulder. Like they're all hurt. Yeah, they're, they, they they get a little bit of bad luck with injuries in Niners, but that's a good game. It's a good pick too. Um, you know, that's basically a pick of just San Fran's home, so they're getting the three there. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, and uh, so that's gonna be a nice game. That's gonna be another fun one. And, you know. I mentioned that the Rams and Bucks should have been Sunday night, but this one I'm okay with being Sunday night if that's not. Yeah, and the hook I think is big in that game. Yeah, it's, it's an exciting game. All right. Pick number three. This is more of like a pick against this team laying this many points. I'm taking the Bengals getting four and a half in Pittsburgh against the Steelers. I've, I've watched Pittsburgh the first two weeks. I do not like what's going on with them. Ben Rosberg looks cooked. They could not move the ball at all against the Raiders. Najee Harris, I mean, he, yes, he had that one big stiff arm play, not doing much against the run. The Bengals have been feisty the first two games. They even they beat Minnesota in overtime. They had a big comeback against the Bears. They almost came back to win that game. I'm getting four and a half points, and I think this game's a field goal game either way, because I think the Bengals will make enough plays here, especially if TJ Watt is banged up, and he's a big key to that Steeler defense. I'll take the points of the Bengals. I'll, I'll bet on Joe Burrow keeping this game close in Pittsburgh. That's my third pick of the week. How about... Um uh Johnson is he injured as well I know he got banged up in the last game yeah is he gonna be I don't know if he's gonna be okay I don't I know they're they know it's they they announced it wasn't anything serious but is he even gonna play that yeah. guy could be a huge for them if yeah. he's not you know for the Bengals I like that pick I yeah. think I agree with you on the Roethlisberger thing especially he looks cooked yeah he looks cooked and if they don't block that punt I think they beat the Bills week one yeah yeah all right, so to reset the picks here, Nick is taking the Seattle Seahawks laying a point and a half in Minnesota against the Vikings, the Bucks getting a point and a half in Los Angeles against the Rams, and the Patriots laying three at home against the New Orleans Saints. I am taking the Rams laying the point and a half. I'm going head to head with Nick on that Ram-Buck game. I'm taking the Packers getting three and a half in San Francisco on Sunday night, and the Cincinnati Bengals getting four and a half in Pittsburgh against the Steelers. Those are your picks for week number three here on the podcast and next piece of business here and you are in the knockout pool as well the knockout pick this week is very challenging yeah it is uh tough this week i went with um the rams and cleveland and the first two and uh this week i'm thinking i'm just gonna take buffalo yeah but what do you what do you think yeah, it's tough. I mean, I took the Niners week one. They scared the hell out of me at the end there. The Browns, I took week two with you, and then they, I think if Tyrod Taylor doesn't get hurt, we lose that game, I'd be honest with you. Yeah, I yeah. think so too. So I know a lot of people say to save, and to me, I never save a team because you can try saving, and then you're not there in week 10 to, to have it matter. So, you know, I've seen so many games where even the top game of the week loses. So yeah. to me, save, I always say this too. Week one, I guess week three now, we don't really know who the good teams are yet. We have a 2-0 and Carolina team. What if they're 8-1? and one? Yeah. If they're 8-1, and one, I would love to take them in week 11. Yeah. You know, week 10, whatever it may be, when, assuming they're by week. Yeah. So let me see. Let me pick the teams I know that are good right now. Like, I know the Rams are good. The Browns are getting a little scared there. Yeah. The, the Bills, I know, are a good team. I know they had a slow start against Pittsburgh. But, like, these are the teams I know are good. The Chiefs, you know. And then when week eight comes around, week nine, maybe there'll be some new teams that are good in the mix. Yeah. Yeah, speak, it's funny you brought the Panthers up because that's that's actually where I decided to go. It's like I'm taking the Panthers because on the short week against the Texans because for me, I do not see any way Davis Mills wins that game on three days rest against a very good Panther offense and defense has played very well in the early going. The Panthers, I think they're going to be a good team. I think they're, I don't know if they're going to make the playoffs, but I think they're going to be, I think they're going to be 
flirting with it. Yeah. I also like just the way that they played. The Saint one impressed me because I thought they didn't look that great against the Jets. They just dominated that New Orleans game. And Davis Mills with three days to get ready for that team is not going to be have a lot of fun. Yeah, the Texans are rough. Yeah. Like, I, I, what, what do they do? What are, like, what is their plan? Yeah. I have no not, idea. They don't have a plan. They yeah. get rid of everybody. It also tells you that if Deshaun Watson was not playing this week when they had no quarterback here, he ain't playing for them this year. No. No. Do you think he'll play anywhere this year, though? I do not think he's going to play anywhere this year. These teams are going to wait until this legal situation gets cleared up and figure out what's going on there because I don't think yeah. they want to trade for him and have Goodell say, oh, he's suspended for eight games because of off-the-field violations. Yeah, we've seen it before, too, where it happens at the end of the year. Like, it happened to Elliott yeah. about four years ago or so. I think it was in his second year. He, Yeah, he went out right around Halloween or so or Thanksgiving maybe. Yep. So that you've seen that happen, and I'm sure it will again with him. Just a matter of, well, they trade him, but you know, if he's out for let's say eight games, will they trade him next off season? I guess, right? Yeah, I think it would be a next off season. Let's see what happens with his legal situation, then figure out who needs yeah. a quarterback then, because the market now is not really that great. So I've made the Dolphins. Um, I I root for a team that I would love to trade for a quarterback, but. Don't see them doing it. I don't see them either. Uh, next week on the picks here, we're going to be joined by the great John Stanko making his NFL picks debut. And big Patriot guy. I figure with the big Tom Brady return to Foxborough next Sunday night, you get to get a Patriot fan in the building for that. It's going to be a great one. Can't wait for that game. Yeah. I think the, the drama will be much better than the actual football game itself is, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree too. But at least it's in New England. I always say, if you're going to do a game where a good team plays a bad team on a primetime game, at least make the bad team home. Yeah. I also think it's fortunate that we this game came this year when you actually have fans there and opposed to last year when it would have been an empty stadium. Yeah. Yeah, just the luck of the draw. Once every four, eight years, I guess they play there. But once every four years, they play them. So it's just, just luck of the draw that it turned out to be this year. Yeah, absolutely. And Nick, this is not the last we're going to see you this month because coming up next week, we're going to do, finally, I know it's been a little bit of a hiatus here because we've had a lot of things come up here. We're going to do Rebel Season 2 in the Sky Guys. So excited about that. I'm very excited. I know we've, we're both in the middle of watching it. I'm up to about halfway down a little more right now, and I'm loving it. It's a great season. Yeah, I finished episode 12 last night, so I'm I'm enjoying what I've seen I so far. I think I did too. I think that's what I finished last night as well. Yeah, I'm excited. So we're right around the same spot. Yeah, we're right there. We've got about 10 episodes to go. Plus, like, we have the shorts coming out this week, Star Wars Visions, which is the anime-style shorts. I'm excited to see what those look like. Yeah, I'm excited to see what that's all about. Absolutely. And Nick, thanks for all the time again. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. And we'll talk next week. For sure. And coming up next on Two Minute Drill, Nick, you saw the halftime of the Giant Washington game to talk about the Hard Knocks in season reveal, right? I did. I did. That's a cool concept. I know people love Hard Knocks, so more Hard Knocks, the better. Absolutely. I'll give my thoughts on what that could look like right after this. The Two Minute Drill. All right, two-minute drill time here, and I want to talk on this Hard Knocks news that came out at halftime of Thursday Night Football last week with the Giants and the Washington football team. Very fascinating news here that HBO and the NFL are debuting an in-season edition of Hard Knocks. And you know my Hard Knocks. It's the great show, follows the team through training camp, through the process of going from 90 to 53. The Cowboys were on this year. Jets have been on it. A lot of teams have been on it. A lot of fun. It was very interesting. Starting November 17th, 
We get an episode of Hard Knocks every week featuring the Indianapolis Colts push for the playoffs. That means at least eight episodes of Hard Knocks in our lives. Plus, potential for more if the Colts are the postseason. Because the NFL has said, if the Colts make it, the show will follow them until the end of their season. In theory, if the Colts win the Super Bowl, we could see Hard Knocks documenting the Super Bowl, which is pretty insane. If all this sounds a bit familiar to you, it should. Because for a few years, NFL Films did a spot, a series with Amazon Prime called All or Nothing. It basically did the Hard Knocks formula for a team throughout their entire regular season. John Hamm was the narrator there instead of Leo Schreiber. That show has since been canceled. It was probably a victim of the, of the pandemic because last year they didn't have a team because it was hard to get these teams, these cameras at the facility. Are you sitting there saying, okay, is it the same show? I don't think it's going to be the same show. Here's why. The big difference here is that All or Nothing was really filmed throughout the year, put together at the end of the season when we know how the team finishes. The last team on it, I want to say, was, was the Eagles. And we knew how the Eagles did that year. We knew they made the playoffs and lost. The editors can thus craft their stories throughout and drop hints in episode two, something that matters in episode seven. Stuff like that is what you do when you have the whole season. Hard Knocks is not going to have that luxury because they are going to be doing it like they did the preseason. Week to week. Live. Following stories as they happen in each game. To put in reality TV terms. And you know, I'm a big reality TV guy. I love this stuff. All or nothing is like editing a season of Survivor. Which they film in advance. They film the entire thing. They know who wins. They know who loses. They know when people go out. And they say, okay, here we're going to tell a story of how this happens. Hard Knocks is more like the Big Brother approach. Where the show is unfolding as we exist right now. Like we are recording. There's actually a season of Big Brother happening on CBS right now. There are people in a house in California playing this game you can be watching them live on internet feed seeing what they're doing right now if you wanted to the editors on that show have to take what's happening right now and then produce turn into an episode of tv basically as it's happening without knowing who's gonna win that's what the hard knocks model is i'm very intrigued with this to see how this ends up playing out you can see how the Colts let hbo use because obviously the teens have control over the cut and we never seen a team in season have to try and be careful what they're showing in meetings because now teams will look at that and say, ooh, film on the Colts that we can't get. Let's look at this. There will be teams undoubtedly watching episodes looking for clues on how the game plan them for now and in the future. But I think this thing's going to be a massive hit. Hard Knocks is always very popular. I think if the Colts win the race, they should be because the division stinks. I mean, it would be fascinating to see an insight look at them trying to make the postseason in the AFC. And I think if this lands... I think we're getting a lot more of this in the future because we're always looking for more content. And this is a proven brand. HBO's Hard Knocks uh, may not be as good as it was in the early days. It's still a very good show. I think we're getting a lot more of this in the future. I think this this is the replacement for All or Nothing. I'm all for it. With that, I want to end the show for the week. I want to thank my guest, John Coppinger, for calling and talking about the current day Mets and looking back at that 86 Mets team for the What's my time in Queens documentary? All four parts we've not seen yet are streaming on the ESPN app. I highly recommend you check it out. It's a lot of fun. I also want to thank Nick Friday for hopping on the line to go ahead and do the picks. A lot of fun stuff. A lot of stuff like this podcast, including my reaction to the Giants watching a football team game last week. And boy, it was something. Check out the blog over at justendthesuffering.wordpress.com. You'll subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon, all the usual suspects. Simply search for Just and the Suffering, your favorite podcast platform. You can find all episodes there. 
Feel free to your feedback and star ratings as well. That the podcast even better going forward. You can also follow my YouTube page, Mike Phillips on YouTube. You can check out the individual conversations from the episode. My chats with John and Nick will be up there as well. You can also follow my Twitter page at mphillips331. That's M-P-H-I-L-I-P-S-3-3-1. And that's going to do it for this week's show. I want to look ahead to next week. Got some fun stuff coming up here. We got to do more baseball. Regular season wrapping up, getting ready for the playoffs, do some NFL picks. The Sky Guy is going to be in the mix next week. I don't know if it's part of one episode or a separate one, but we will be getting to that as well and more. Until then, I hope you have a better week than New York Giants fans. Come on and meet the Mets. Meet the Mets. Step right up and greet the Mets. Bring your kiddies, bring your wife. Guaranteed to have the time of your life because the Mets are really something the ball. Knocking those home runs over the wall. East side, west side. Everybody's coming down.